Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 276, The Reformation of England. Super quick update first. Firstly, so you know, there is a new mini-series for History of England members. Yeah, it's called Life and Landscape in Anglo-Saxon England, and it's for once a chance to hear about the life of ordinary folk in England and how their lives changed before the conquest and how they mould and were moulded by England's landscape. And I've written the whole thing, so it's a six-episode mini-series. We've had two episodes so far, so in the words of Anita Ward, if that rings your bell, come along and sign up to be a member. Which leads me on to another quick admin message. You can sign up to be a member on my website, thehistoryofengland.co.uk, or on Patreon. Now, I had a very unhappy message on Patreon from someone who thought they had not been given access to the website. Here is the way it works. If you choose to sign up by Patreon, you get access to all the Shedcasts through Patreon. And you get access to my website, but I have to do that manually. So, I send you a message through Patreon asking for some details. So please, if you sign up for Patreon, look out for my message. And if for some reason I forget you don't get it, shout at me. Right, sorry. Onwards and back to the history. Now look, there will be no let-up from religious persecution, sorry about that, but we can take a quick break and return briefly to the stuff of political and dynastic concerns, which are the proper preserve of podcasts. It's a funny thing, and a funny thing to which we will later return, I have no doubt, that amidst the horror of Mary's burnings, there is plenty of space and time also to feel deeply sympathetic for her personally because of the various horriblenesses of her life inflicted on her by her father, and now because so much relied on her pregnancy. On the one hand, the first five months of 1555 must have been one of the happiest periods in Mary's life. She was confident of her pregnancy, she was married, the Catholic Counter-Reformation was rolling out, her mother's memory properly vindicated. On the other hand, the pressure must have been intense, with the danger inherent in early modern childbirth and the boy or girl issue, although maybe Mary herself had now much reduced the pressure of the gender thing. But it was so important that she have an heir. Until she did, all of her achievements felt temporary. It was not just Mary and the English who waited anxiously, mouth open, paused over an iced bun or whatever, cup of tea steaming bunside while they watched. Relations between the Empire and France were fractious. Peace negotiations were stalled because an heir would strengthen the Empire's negotiating position enormously. Mary's due date was set by her largely clueless physicians for, on or before, the 9th of May 1555. And after Easter, at the start of April, Mary and Philip moved to Hampton Court, 
down the river from Westminster, and the Queen's apartments were prepared, and in she moved. Interestingly, she would have preferred to go to Windsor, but this was considered too far away for her safety, so worries about resistance to her reign were clearly taken very seriously. The weather was bloody awful, which is par for the course, of obviously, since this is April we're talking about here, and as we all know, April is the cruelest month. Folks were even now beginning to worry about the harvest, but for Mary and her court, these were minor concerns. Everything was surely set fair. Little sister Elizabeth, meanwhile, was having a thoroughly irritating and frustrating time, imprisoned at Woodstock, which is north of Oxford, in the charge of the none-too-sharp Henry Beddingfield. For Elizabeth, Mary's birth also had the potential to utterly transform her life, of course. With an air wiggling its little toeses in its little cotty-wotty, Elizabeth would become an irrelevance. There was a very, very strong likelihood that Mary would never allow her to marry, and kept under a cloud of suspicion, it was looking either like a short life or a really boring one with no political influence or independence. Now, Henry Beddingfield kept a diary while he was Elizabeth's jailer, and he noted that after Mary's marriage to Philip, during church services, she resolutely refused to take part in the prayer for the health of the king and queen, which is very naughty of her. It's probably for these two considerations that Elizabeth made poor old Henry Beddingfield's life merry hell. She might be in prison, but Elizabeth still had many advantages over her putative and supposed boss. First, she was royal and he wasn't. So whenever he spoke to her, he had to do so kneeling. Now, kneeling in front of your opponent really sucks as a position of negotiation or authority. Really, it does. Secondly, she was superbly educated and Henry was, well, less so, shall we say. Finally, she was as sharp as a knife, while Henry was, well, less so, shall we say. So, Elizabeth kept insisting she'd be allowed to plead her cause with Mary and the council, and Beddingfield found himself manoeuvred into allowing it. Mary, however, found Elizabeth's pleadings no more than irritating and deeply unconvincing, and was quite brutal, actually, in return. When finally goaded into a reply... Mary wrote to Henry rather than giving Elizabeth the satisfaction of a direct reply, which was clever of Mary. She simply dismissed Elizabeth's arguments, remarking that Elizabeth might have enjoyed her favour long ago if her constant claims of innocence had so well satisfied indifferent ears as it seemed to satisfy her own opinion. Basically, as far as Mary was concerned, Elizabeth was guilty. Everyone else thought so too. It's just that she couldn't prove it. And that was all. And then, near the end of April, Mary's attitude did seem to change, and Elizabeth was summoned back to court. But it was Gardner that met her, and he returned immediately to the place where they'd left off, demanding that she admit her guilt. There remained, however, no flies on Elizabeth, and she simply sidestepped the question with ease. Where again, it helps if your interlocutor is kneeling while they try to browbeat you. Their matters rested for a couple of weeks until at 10 o'clock one night, Elizabeth was summoned to see the Queen. This was a little worrying. 10pm. Surely everyone's in bed by then unless match the days on. Elizabeth immediately suspected an assassination attempt, but she was taken to the Queen's private staircase. 
There followed a mildly grumpy conversation, but when Elizabeth again refused to admit to any wrongdoing, the matter was finally allowed to rest. Elizabeth had apparently finally been fully forgiven. Why is something of a question? It could be that Mary was just feeling super confident and felt she could safely pitter her younger, futureless sister. Or it could be, as John Fox claimed, that it was Philip and the Spanish courtiers who had talked Mary round. There's even a suggestion that Philip was hiding in the room when the meeting took place. It seems reasonably secure that Philip felt no more than respect for Mary and that his interest in England was mainly strategic. So, there's a suggestion that it was in Philip's interest to keep on friendly terms with both royals, just in case Mary was in fact actually ill. Well, that seems probably history from the wrong end, that is to say, attributing a remarkable level of foresight from Philip by looking back with hindsight. But it's not quite as far-fetched as you might think, because there had been constant rumours that Mary's pregnancy was a fake. But all of that was dispelled when on the 30th of April 1555 the bells started ringing like bilio, announcing to the world the birth of a royal child. Wild! Everyone went potty. The news spread like a rash on a baby's bottom and the bells were rung in Antwerp to celebrate an imperial child and the imperial court celebrated in style. Fantastic. Mary had secured the future of her Tudor dynasty. The Catholic succession was secure. The Protestant religion was slowly ground out of the remaining believers. England remained tied to a Catholic continental mainland and France was forced into subjection over the next century by the overweening might of the Habsburg Empire and its friends. In perfect safety, England's naval strength was unrequired and was scaled back until England became an offshoot of the mighty Spanish Empire, which rules Europe to this day. The end. That, gentle listeners, is the end of the history of England. Good luck, everyone, and have a great life. Not really, obviously. Actually, I've never been very good at counterfactual history, but, you know, maybe something like that would have happened. Who knows? Sadly for Mary... It was a false alarm. Never mind, still time left, and Mary certainly claimed that she could feel the child moving within her. But scepticism around her was growing, and as the month passed, poor Mary must have been assailed by doubts. We're told that she spent hours sitting on the floor of her room with her knees drawn up to her chin, which I am reliably informed is not an ideal position if you really are nine months pregnant. By the 24th, Mary, casting around desperately for explanations, decided that this was God's judgment and that until more progress had been made cleansing the land of heretics, she would not deliver. And so she sent out a circular urging the bishops to make more haste with the persecutions. Giovanni Michelli reported the tension that held the whole court in its grip. Everything is in suspense and dependent on the result of this delivery which according to the opinion of the physicians, unless it takes place at this new phase of the moon two days hence, may be protracted beyond the full and its occultation on the fourth or fifth of next month, Her Majesty's belly having greatly declined, which is said yet more to indicate the approaching term. Giovanni was way more optimistic than most. 
News slipped up from Sarah Clarencius that she thought the Queen was not pregnant, but just ill. Philip's secretary, Rigometh, wrote, All this makes me wonder whether she is with child at all, greatly as I desire the thing to be happily over. Noai, the French ambassador, was much more contemptuous of the whole thing. Worse, Mary's misery seems to have been reflected in the weather and economy. The weather was dreadful, prices were rocketing, and many were staring at the prospect of painful shortages, throwing themselves on the mercy of their parish, or even starvation. Protestant pamphlets and bills threw scorn and conspiracy theories at her pregnancy. Incredibly, poor Mary remained hopeful and determined. Some of her ladies summoned up the courage to express their doubts now, which allows me to bring up the name Frideswide Strelly once more for your attention. Frideswide Strelly. For it was she, Strelly, who voiced said doubts. But Mary clung desperately on. Even as late as the middle of July, she wrote to her ambassador in Brussels, telling him to deny the rumours that she was no longer pregnant. Mary had become practically a recluse, could no longer bear to look anyone in the face. There, to see unbearable sympathy and a truth she could hardly deny any more, even to herself. The court was a hothouse, stuffed full of noble men and women, come to share the joy of the royal birth. The latrines, no doubt, were overflowing after all this time, the daily processions and prayers for the baby's delivery carrying on regardless in an atmosphere of growing cynicism and disbelief expressed behind hands and round corners and in secret, but never openly. Giovanni again wrote of The Queen's remaining so many days in retirement to the prejudice of her subjects, as not only did she transact no business, but would scarcely allow herself to be seen by any of her ladies. Meanwhile, while Mary shut herself away, her unbearably relaxed, confident and intelligent sister was making herself pleasant to the rest of the court, English and Spanish. How unbearably annoying of her. At the time of the Queen's pregnancy, Lady Elizabeth, when made to come to court, contrived so to ingratiate herself with all the Spaniards and especially the King, that ever since no one has favoured her more than he does. And the rumour ran round, that Elizabeth had set her cap at the king, and that the king was not immune to the attractions of Elizabeth's cap. I do hope Mary never heard or saw anything. The level of irritation would surely have been thermonuclear. But eventually, by the end of July, three months overdue, the dam broke and the waters of hope and optimism ran away through the sluices to drown the parched land of reality. Ah, Strelly, Strelly, I see they all be but flatterers, and none true to me but thou, wept Mary, and admitted that Strelly had been right all along. Maybe it's Fridswide rather than Frideswide. What do you think? Poor Mary could no longer hold on tight to her dreams. There was no official announcement, but by the 4th of August 1555, the daily procession and prayers for the birth of the child were stopped. The nursery attendants' rockers and little tiny clothes were all sent away. The courtiers got the message, and gratefully they reached for home. The latrines breathed a huge sigh of relief, and the court moved on to Oatlands. 
I had not heard of Oaklands until this moment, actually. It looked as though it would have been very nice in Tudor times, a bit like Hampton Court. It is now much changed, of course, and a hotel. Lord knows what the hotel industry would have done without the royal family. What a hideous nightmare, though, for Mary. Her friends and supporters were appalled, of course. But the Protestants, labouring under her whips, were very, very relieved. A prince would have made the king supreme, they feared. His father will bring into this realm his own nation and put out the English nation. Sadly, it was not going to get any better for Mary. So there was Philip, still just 28 years old, trapped in a marriage that from his viewpoint was loveless and which was looking alarmingly as though it would be childless to boot. Meanwhile, his dad was getting increasingly old and incapable and generally cranky, as fathers do, and had taken to wearing his socks and open-toed sandals in public and was desperate to hand his empire over to Philip and Ferdinand. Philip had wanted to be off from English shores before and now the desire was just overwhelming. But Philip had at least the awareness to know this was going to be something of a blow to Mary. So he did what blokes do in this situation and asked a mate to help him write a letter, or at least he drafted it out and asked for advice, along with a note to said mate, in this case, Rigometh. Let me know what line I am to take with the Queen about leaving her and about religion. I see I must say something, but God help me. It seems far too convenient that Charles V chose this moment to summon his son to the Netherlands, but that is what happened and Philip screwed up courage to tell Mary. Which was sad, since I would imagine a few evenings in with pizza, a bottle of wine and a few games of boggle would have been restorative, but it was not to be. And so she wrote to Charles V. I firmly hope that the King's absence will be brief, for I assure your Majesty that quite apart from my own feelings, his presence in this kingdom has done much good and is of great importance for the good government of this country. For the rest, I am content with whatever may be your Majesty's pleasure. May I say a few things about this snippet, or gobbit, though honestly, gobbit is an unattractive word, isn't it? It seems remarkable again that the deference the head of the English state offered up to the head of a foreign state, and such a letter feeds the story of a Mary in thrall to her hormones and her, to her husband. But hold on just a goddamn minute there, bold eagle. What if I tell you that Philip drew the same conclusions actually or appeared to and set up his own Privy Council in England, whose job it was to sift the work of the Royal Council and transmit directly to Philip that which was important without going via Mary? And what if I were to tell you that this wizard wheeze never worked because Mary refused to be bypassed in such a way? Mary was many things, but she was no pushover. May I also say that on a personal level, Mary's a generous soul, isn't she? Lavishly sharing praise for her friends, however brutal she might be to her enemies. Philip, however, could be described at very least as disingenuous. He decided that he would sweeten the pill by leaving his household in England to convince Mary that, in the words of Oliver, he'd be back soon. The clever money at the time was on a steady drip drip of household members being called unannounced to the Netherlands until by a thousand cuts the household salami would be gone. To add to the disingenuous charge, which is essentially a nice way of saying duplicitous, we need to add insensitivity. Because he then asked Mary if Elizabeth could go with him to see him off, 
and then recommended her to Mary. Come on. I mean, words fail me. Mary managed not to punch him in the mouth, as it happens, and it was therefore so. Princess Elizabeth went to wave Philip off. Thanks for coming. Bye. Mary was gutted when Philip left and would count the hours until he would return. Michele noted that she lost weight and that she missed him. The extreme need she has of her consort's presence harassing her, as she told me, she having also, within the last few days, in great part lost her sleep. By December, Philip's household had indeed been reunited with their prince in the Low Countries. Alfonso the chaplain, like all of them probably, was jolly relieved to have shaken the dust of England from their Castilian boots. The king's confessor has arrived here and repeated a variety of fouler language offered by the English, indicating their ill will towards his majesty and the Spanish nation. Elizabeth was now free, and she returned to her household at Hatfield, there to wait out events. Mary, meanwhile, now turned even more to Reginald Poole to be her rod and staff to comfort her. Reginald was installed in her palace to be near her, which was without doubt helpful, for there was now nothing more important than continuing the good work to bring her people back to the path of righteousness. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. On August the 3rd, 1555, six Protestants were burned at Canterbury, as the home of the great heretic himself, Thomas Cranmer, one of the areas that had welcomed the Reformed religion with most enthusiasm, as home to the Reformed smoker Bishop Richard Thorndon, and as home of the Archbishop of Canterbury designate until Cranmer could be properly removed, Canterbury would be the site of many festivals of burning, with multiple heretics burned on the same day. In October, England had finally been rid of Latimer and Ridley, where in Oxford, as already related, they had played the man and lit a candle that, unbeknownst to Poole and Mary, would never be put out. From October to December, only eight would be burned to bring the 1555 total to 76, because Poole now had the more important part of his mission to attend to. Remember? Not to destroy, but to build that bit. Poole would work with his bishops to create a vibrant, reformed, outward-looking Catholicism that would consign England's deviance to the bulging dustbin of history. On the 4th of November, Paul convened his clerical assembly at Westminster as papal legate. Now, as it happens, he might have been slightly nervous about his legatine status. His great friend and supporter, Julius III, had died in March, and after a brief month of a Marcellus as Pope, he was succeeded as Pope by Paul's great enemy, Gian Pietro Caraffa, now calling himself Pope Paul IV. Paul IV now. Paul IV was a supernova of resentments and furies. His shoulders literally bowed down to the ground with chips. Well, figuratively bowed down to the ground with chips. The biggest chip of all on his shoulders 
was a towering hatred of the Spanish that would make the Burj Khalifa look like a sandcastle. If the Burj Khalifa has 210 floors and Paul IV's hatred of the Spanish was at the 210th floor, then Paul had just moved into an apartment on the 209th. But Paul IV was not yet ready to spew his vengeance on Paul's slippers. And slightly surprisingly, for the moment, he simply sent a nice letter confirming Paul's position as papal legate. But watch this space. The clerical assembly started with a symbolic act of generosity from Queen Mary. The return of the taxes called the first fruit and tenths, the taxes paid by bishops taking up new posts, which Henry VIII had taken from the church for his own nefarious ends. Subject to approval by Parliament, of course. The Crown was also planning to introduce a bill to Parliament to confiscate all the property belonging to the exiles, since they were obviously Protestant backsliders. And that would be presented to Parliament in the next few weeks, Mary told the Assembly. So, once those grand gestures were introduced, the clerics started their work, which they would present the following February. First of all, though, came sad news, and it is time, gentle listeners, to say our farewells to one of the mightier figures that has bestrode our podcast like a colossus these past years. I speak of Wiley Winchester, Stephen Gardner, who died on the 19th of November 1555 at the age of something approaching 60. I feel a genuine sadness, and contemporaries, whatever they thought of the man, were also well aware of the significance of his passing. Now, I do feel slightly guilty, and that what I don't believe I've really brought out about the man is the quality of his scholarships who've been so bound up with the religion and the politics of it all. And that is an egregious failing for which I heartily repent. He was a theologian of a European reputation, second only maybe to John Fisher. He was at the centre of the political stage, though, for over 30 years and could never be ignored. He's right up there in terms of Tudor statesmen with Wolsey, Cromwell, Cecil, Bolsingham. Like most of them, he had to adapt politically over time, and there are changes in his position that gave some credence to John Fox's Wiley Winchester label. But really, by and large, he was a man of pretty consistent principles. The big one he had to abandon was his belief in the royal supremacy, which he convinced himself of under Henry VIII. But look, to give him his due, he recognised under Edward that he was just not prepared to run with the fox and hunt with the hounds, and he was duly dragged to prison, metaphorically yelling as he went. He was essentially a conservative, in religion and socially, hating with a passion the appearance of the voices of the great unwashed that access to the scriptures brought through the Reformation. He was without doubt arrogant and irascible, but a force always to be reckoned with. G.R. Elton said of him that he always made enemies more readily than friends. But while I would not dare to argue with the great man, Armstrong, in the Oxford database of national biography, notes that among his own people, he also generated great loyalty. And he had a wicked sense of humour, though a pretty abrasive one. I am put in mind of his goading of the Marian exiles by inviting them to supper and then rubbing his hands with glee when they legged it in terror. It's the kind of humour of King John, actually. Elton also remarked that Gardner had an energetic, ranging, fertile mind with an eye to self-advancement. And he was certainly a competent and intelligent administrator and public servant. Gardner also had a great belief in his own political skills. He knew himself to be a political heavyweight. 
But actually, it's here that his failures put him in the second rank. Didn't quite ever possess that ruthless supremacy that Cromwell gained, and that Cecil will have. He put his foot firmly in the brown stuff at critical times. He messed up with Henry at a crucial moment, and as a result, it was Cromwell that reigned supreme. He failed to destroy Cranmer in 1543 and Catherine Parr in 1546. He survived Edward only because he was in the hands of gentler people, all things being comparative, of course. Anyway, he was gone and would eventually be buried in a rather impressive chantry chapel in Winchester Cathedral, which you can go and look at while enjoying all the wonders of Winchester. His Catholic allies were, of course, gutted, and a round of solemn and impressive celebrations were conducted. It's fair to say that Protestant enemies were less upset. That's probably not fair, actually. They were jolly pleased, and as Cardinal Poole lamented, they were much heartened at the removal of an effective and impressive opponent. So, while the clerics deliberated about how to reinvigorate Catholic practice, troubles crowded in on Mary and her government. Grain prices were causing enormous problems as the wet weather led to poor harvests in some places. In the winter of 1555, wheat prices were three times what they'd been a year before. They were set to go higher, but this was bad enough. Meanwhile, from the Netherlands, Philip was setting out his stall. As we know, Philip had never been happy with the idea of being a stay-at-home king. The lack of a prince, the experience of being back in the saddle was making him somewhat more uncompromising. He wanted power. The symbol of this was his coronation. He'd never been crowned in England, and everyone was nervous about how it would look. But now, Philip wrote, demanding his due. When he'd left, Philip had given the strong impression that this was the royal equivalent of just nipping round the corner for a pint of milk to be back in a mow. Now, his letters made a coronation a condition of him coming back. Mary pointed out in reply that Parliament just wouldn't wear it, and full credit to Mary, she is no tyrant. Philip, on the other hand, thought this kind of kowtowing to the will of the people was so much namby-pamby, mealy-mouthed, chicken-livered populism, and was tart. Ladies and gentlemen, tarter than a wet weekend in Bakewell, and he told Mary to just use the royal prerogative. There it was left for the moment, and Philip stayed mooching around the corner shop looking at the cake section, or rather sampling it, because on top of all of that, Mary now had to put up with reports of Philippine philandering. Utterly standard this might be for the time, but still not nice for Mary, given her evident feelings for Philip. And then there was Parliament. As Mary had promised, the return of the first fruits tax to church was put before Parliament. Parliament, in response, was rumbustuous. Now, we are used to parliamentary rumbosity these days, Back then, he was just supposed to do what it was told. But it seemed jolly close to not doing that. I mean, in the end it was fine, but Mary was very unhappy with the tenor of debate, and with the tenor also of the debate about whether Philip should have his coronation or not, which essentially confirmed Mary's fears that Parliament would not wear it. They would not. But look, it was all fine in the end. The first fruits got through, though the vote at 193 to 126 is the most unusual level of resistance in a Tudor parliament. And there was a deal of economic and social legislation, re-enacting the poor law and vagrancy legislation of Henry and Edward, passing legislation to help out weavers and the cloth industry. These are areas I talk of little, and I redouble my determination to get some social stuff once we've buried Mary. But 
Mary was irritated at Parliament's surliness about the whole thing. And so she was proper ballistic when she heard about the events of the 6th of December. Mary's council, as mentioned, had now introduced a punitive bill snappily entitled For punishment of those such as being gone into parts beyond the sea shall contemptuously remain there notwithstanding the king's and queen's letters to them sent or proclamations openly made for their calling home. Titles, it must be said, was not a Tudor talent. For shorthand, the bill became known as the Duchess of Suffolk's Bill, that being Catherine Willoughby, who had fled Catholicism, as we mentioned a couple of episodes ago. Now, the Duchess of Suffolk's Bill was hotly debated. Hotly, I say. Many in Parliament did not like it one little bit. Partly because of Protestant feeling, the key player, for example, will be one Anthony Kingston, a man of very clearly Protestant sympathies. But there were other worries too. What did this bill say about the security of property? And property, ladies and gentlemen, is king in Tudor England and queen also. What were the real terms of this bill? After all, not all folks on the continent were there because they were prots. This led to furious rows in the Commons as the bill went through its readings until it came to the third and final reading. Sir George Howard and Sir Edward Hastings almost came to blows. A man called John Perrott became so angry that at supper he threw a dagger at the Earl of Pembroke, a worthy sentiment, it must be said, daggers being too good for the black-sliding Earl. There was a lot of opposition, but it appeared at last that the bill would just squeak through the final reading nonetheless. But then, on the 6th of December in the chamber, during another debate, Anthony Kingston, MP, looked round and noticed that the nays looked as though they had a temporary majority with some of the yeas having, I don't know, nipped out to the loo or nipped out for a restorative bun or something. Quick as a flash, he and some pals seized the key of the chamber from the sergeant-at-arms. They blockaded the doors to stop anyone fetching government reinforcements and insisted that the speaker should put the bill to the question now. The bill was finally put to the question and duly defeated. Kingston was lobbed into jail by a furious Mary until a suitable volume of grovelling had been delivered. One of the other voters against the bill, interestingly enough, was William Cecil, prepared this time for once to put his head above the parapet, for which he was given a severe dressing down by William Paget. In reply, Cecil calmly remarked, Although with danger to myself, I spoke my opinion freely and brought upon me some ill will thereby but it is better to serve God than man. Despite the fury of the Royal Council, the damage was done. Now look, it's not the biggest matter. Overall, the 1555 Parliament achieved plenty for the government. But as David Starkey pointed out, this is an utterly exceptional level of parliamentary dissent for its time. In February 1556, then, the Clerical Assembly finally delivered its planned programme in a document called Reformatio Anglicae, the Reformation of England. It's a title that reminds us that the Reformation was not the sole preserve of Protestantism, and also conversely that the aim of Protestantism had been and remained yet to reform what they considered the true Catholic Church, not simply a Roman Catholic Church. The programme put in place a series of measures to address the critical issue of the quality of the priesthood, the role of the bishops to provide leadership in their dioceses, and clerical absenteeism and pluralism were attacked with specific measures put in place to improve things. Much has been made of the rejection of an offer by Loyola to establish a Jesuit college in England, 
In fact, Pooh was perfectly friendly towards Loyola, but he had his own plans, and therefore a system of seminaries was to be established in England to train priests, and four such seminaries would indeed be established over the following years. To add to this programme, monasteries began to be re-established, and the first indeed was established in this very year, 1556. The problem was that there was no prospect, as we've seen, of reclaiming the land and wealth of the dissolved monasteries, so everything had to be done from scratch, from bottom up, right from the beginning. By 1558, seven monasteries would have been established. That has been a matter of some debate. Is this success or is it failure? And you can look at it in two ways. Either you snigger and pshaw and mutter, seven? Gosh, it's not very many, is it? And you might reflect also that of 1,500 surviving ex-religious, ex-monks and so on, only about 100 of them actually went and rejoined monasteries. You might also reflect that there was little sign of a resurgence of chantry chapels. Or, on the other hand, you might point out that establishing new monasteries is not the job of a moment and it takes time. In actual fact, seven in three years or so is pretty good. And anyway, the priority of the Catholic world had moved away from chantries now. Both views might be held reasonably, I guessed, and debated at length. Over the next couple of years, these reforms and the efforts of the bishops in fact made significant progress in re-establishing not just Catholic practice, but the fabric that supported it. Great efforts were made to reclaim the universities for Catholic teaching. A steady programme of the restoration of the altars, books and materials was carried on in the parishes with steady success. In 1554, for example... Only half of the parishes in Bath and Wells met all the requirements. By 1557, 86% did so. Old habits began to return, and they can be seen in church warden accounts and in the making of wills. So the old forms of requests of prayers for the dead, for example, began to creep back into wills and grow in number. Rather critically, though, the assembly ordained that there was still to be no vernacular scripture. It was debated to and fro, but it was as yet too divisive for Catholic bishops. Now, Paul probably recognised that leaving vernacular scriptures as the preserve of the Protestants was a serious failure, and there was some work done nonetheless, so a set of sermons in English for priests to use was, was produced. Paul established a group to produce a catechism in English, although when it arrived in 1558, it was actually still in Latin. And nor was any coherent university curriculum produced. In the end, the summary of the Reformatio Anglicae might be that progress was clearly being made and that Paul and his church were clearly about much more than simply turning the clock back, and that with time, probably much more would have been achieved. But that it was nonetheless not enough, and they were not to have that time. And meanwhile, attempts at reform would be conducted against the backdrop of Protestant propaganda and resistance uncertainty about the security of the succession and therefore a lack of confidence in the permanence of the Counter-Reformation. Okay, so that seems a good place to leave it. Next time, which shall be in two weeks' time, the Marian persecution gathers pace. Until then, thank you all for listening, good luck and have a great fortnight. Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.